0: Hi everybody. This is Dr. Randy Bach, and uh, this is a pre-recorded episode to be uh, aired on uh, May 11th. Today's Sunday, May 8th, and um, I'm honored to be with um, Dr. Paul Freyter. Uh, I'm sure I didn't quite get it right. Um, he's professor of, of economics, and I believe it's uh, he's got a special niche in well-being analysis. And you know, we all—I mean, there's there's a, a joke. I think. Uh, uh two um uh data analysts walk down the street one says to the other how are you and says well compared to what um so (laughs) i don't know how how fine-tuned uh or what what inspired you to get into uh well-being but before i do that i just want to um say that i was uh uh, able to listen to one of uh dr friter's uh lectures um in part uh last week And I've uh, spent some time on our last week's session uh, talking about some of his uh, research and so forth. So I'll refer you to that. I don't think we're going to go into slides or anything like that today. But uh, the good professor has a a very interesting take on the COVID uh, panic, pandemic. Um, And he actually has a book on this topic as well. So I I recommend you to go look at it. And um, I think you're going to be very fascinated by hearing his take on how we uh kind of can quantify and qualify uh, some of the events that happened and how they played out in our general uh cohesiveness well-being uh, outlook and so forth um so <laughs> take it away uh do you have something to add to my uh you know haphazard uh, intro for you
1: uh it's great being on the show randall i mean just to answer your question how i got into this well during my phd days that was about is 27 years ago now um, i came across the well-being literature and particularly the life satisfaction question and uh, i immediately was struck by the usefulness of having a question that tries its best to summarize everything that's important in life so, you know we ask how satisfied are you with life as a whole uh, and it always struck me that that wouldn't be a bad basis to try and base policy on uh, in terms of well what moves this question up or down um, and we know an awful lot about that question it, it always seemed to me a better goal function to me than just health or just money, right? It's sort of what people themselves think of the lives that they lead. Yeah, I thought that'd be okay. So that's how I got rolled into the well-being literature.
0: Well, you ha- have some very interesting thoughts. I mean, I, uh, I I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not. I imagine that you uh, working on the pun of Dr. Marcus Welby, um, who was a you know TV show, when I was growing up in the US. But uh, your unit is the Welby. Um, so tell me if that was the derivation of the name and uh, or it just comes from well-being uh, either way. Um, and and what is a well-being? How do I get some? <laughs> uh, <laughs> how, how many have I used up and how many more will I get by, uh, by ha- having <laughs> oh a good God. time? on this conversation? I, uh,
1: <laughs> Right. So uh, a well-being, no, it's more well-being years um, and sort of the quality of life. So, no, it did not have to do with Dr. Welby. Um, of course, I'm also not American, so he wasn't as well-known in Europe as uh, as he would be across the pond, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. So, uh, call me, uh, me an ignorant European on that score. Uh, so, what is a Welby? Uh, a Welby is uh, one unit of life satisfaction on a 0 to 10 scale. So, if I asked you how satisfied are you with your life as a whole, where 0 would be not at all and 10 would be completely... Um, then one well is basically one unit move in that for one person for one year. So it's kind of like a flow measure of how much satisfaction you have experienced in a year. Um, And in order to answer your questions, well, um, I'm going to have to guess your age, but let's put it like this. Uh, Guessing that your residual life expectancy is another 30 years and that you spend that roughly at a level of seven, then we know that people are roughly indifferent at the moment but there'd be about a two on that scale. So if they're about a two, they say, look, I don't want to keep on living at this level because that'd be horrible. So you've got another five per year times 30. You've got another 150 well-being to go, Randall. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that would be my, my estimate. Uh, how can you get more? Well, there are three main drivers of it. The biggest driver by far is warm social relationships. So um, there's a nice Chinese saying which sums it up. Uh, happy wife, happy life. So <laughs> you make her happy, she'll make you happy, right? No, it's, it's,
0: it's, it's working out. I, I have my, uh, my, my tiny little handcuff right there.
1: And today well uh, is Mother's Day,
0: and so we're having an excellent time. She's been awesome.
1: <laughs> well, then you're already maximizing, right? So you, if you've got that packed down, then, then you've got most of it. Then, of course, physical health, well, you'll know more about how to keep up your physical health than I do. Uh, social status matters. So, you know, make, make sure that you're well regarded within the circles that you care about. I think you've got something useful to do, which clearly you do. Um, and then, you know, keep your mental health in order. And so there's quite a bit of mental health things one can do, but there again, the, the key input is high social relations. Uh, yeah, keep your friendships in repair as my grandfather would say.
0: Hmm. That's excellent. So you've um, had an interesting career Um, And I believe, are you still associated with the London School of Economics?
1: I am. I'm still an emeritus professor there.
0: So emeritus, that's wonderful. Uh, So tell us, well, I'm interested in, in, I mean, this is a coronavirus conversation in a sense. I'm interested in your uh, taking on COVID. Uh, How publicly did you do it? Did you have feedback from within the academy, uh, up, down, you know, good, bad? And uh, where do you stand and how has it been um, publishing lately? And I will come come around to some of your thoughts and articles.
1: Hmm. Um, I, I came into the corona epidemic just on the back of having spent five years helping the British government devise a well-being methodology, a cost-benefit methodology, effectively. Um, and well-being, life satisfaction is uniquely suited to bring together lots of different spheres in life because... We have this enormous literature going back to the 1930s that tells us about how lots of circumstances affect life satisfaction. So, this is one of the most studied questions in social science. And so, I knew how important social isolation would be. I knew what kind of damage school closures would do. I knew what kind of damage travel closures would do. I knew what kind of damage unemployment by business closures would do. And so very early on, mid-March 2020, where initially I sort of you know, didn't know much, um, I had a look at the data. I had to look at, OK, how dangerous is this virus? And I, I got to a number of 0.2 in the IFR. That seemed to be most likely if I analyzed the Diamond Princess data and some of the other exactly data. Exactly
0: right. I'm so happy you mentioned the Diamond Princess. So I'm going to take one tiny uh, detour, which is uh, Bill Gates, I guess, uh, I don't know, a couple days ago, announced, oh, well, you know, we kind of overdid it. And, uh, you know, if we had known then what we know now about the IFR and so forth, and I'm like, dude, you're like run like, you know, one of the biggest computer companies on earth. You're kind of supposedly a genius and all that kind of stuff. The Diamond Princess, how hard would that have been? I mean, Mm -hmm. everything that was there. About COVID, and that was the earliest, the ancestral version, the most dangerous one, uh, was was already there. It was all—it was a perfect experiment. You, you would, if you had to do an experiment like that all over again and arrange it in the middle of early coronavirus, it would have cost you—I don't know—hundred billion dollars or ten billion dollars just to pay everybody off to be on that boat. And then people wouldn't even do it. And mm-hmm. you hear, you—you you had a perfect experiment, the Diamond Prince. So I—I commend everybody to go look this up. Um, but I'm glad you mentioned. So the data was all there. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry for my my slight detour. Go ahead.
1: Not at all, not at all. I mean, I'm very much a data guy, so I was raised as an econometrician in my master's degree, so, you know, years and years of stats and maths, so uh, it, it's my certainty, right? So when the world seems to go crazy around me, I ask myself, look, are they going crazy or am I missing something? And then I I go into the data, right? Because uh, I've also been a professor of health economics for 10 years, so I, I know how to read these models, these sir models, right? Uh, and I so I know the weak spots. I know how to read the assumptions going into them. So I came to the conclusion, look, the IFR looks like being 0.2. Uh, the people who die of this are about 80 with lots of comorbidities. That means that they'll have a residual life expectancy quality weighted uh, by about free. So about free qualities, 18 well And then I thought, OK, well, if, if that's, as it were, the budget uh, for available policies, what is the loss going to be? And I thought, well, from the social isolation literature and from the very early literature that was already there in March as to how scared the kids were, it's clear that this is going to cost something like 5 to 10% of people's well-being. Well, think about that. So, you know, per million, that means a million people losing 10% of their well-being for one year. That's like 100,000 get one year less. That's like 33,000 get three years less. So that's like 33,000 dying of COVID, because those are the ones who've only got three more years to go. And what is 0.2%? Oh, well, that's only 2,000. So 2,000 versus 33,000, if that's a whole year. And so if you, if you just stack up those numbers, you see, oh, my God, the, the collateral damage is going to just be of a totally different order of magnitude. And I came to the same conclusion when I looked at physical health damage. For instance, take a simple one. The IVF clinics were closed immediately because it was not seen as a a totally important means of health. But I knew that IVF clinics churned out something like 3% of the population per year. Again, 3%. And so, well, how many births have you got in a year on a million? About 10,000, 3% of that. That would be about, what, 900 right? Or are we now being too much? Earner? 300, right? But well, that's 300 who've got 80 years to live, right? Mm-hmm. So that's 300 times 80, 2,400. Ooh, we're getting to be, oh, sorry, uh, 24,000, right? So that's 24,000. Well, if we then do that divided by three, that's the same as 8,000 people dying who've only got three years to go. And so I started to play with these numbers, and the same with the cancers, the same with uh, closures, the same with future government debt. And however I cut it, I got to the notion that the collateral damage of just a week or two of lockdowns is going to dwarf the entire budget available of what you might possibly save. And then I looked at the other thing of this. I thought, well, are these lockdowns going to save anybody? Because, of course, the modeling, the logic of the modeling at that time was that you were flattening the curve. So you were sort of smoothing the infections over time, but you're not going to stop them. They're always going to come back. Right? Uh, this thing was always going to go through the population. That was, in, that, that was a common sort of mechanism within the models, right? And they were sold as such. It was a flattened-the-curve model. So then the question was, well, are these hospitals actually going to do so much for these COVID patients? And then I read about the respirators killing more people than they were saving, uh, I read about, oh, we don't really have a treatment protocol. So I was like, okay, so we're putting in all this effort for no noticeable benefit. We're not looking at this scientifically as, well, what else can we do? Uh, let's do all kinds of uh, looking around as to which accidental medicines are sort of working. We're, we're we're sort of, you know, going blind on sort of draconian lockdown actions, whereas it's clear within one or two weeks the collateral damage is going to outweigh this. This is matters. And so that was my certainty. I mean, I I didn't need anybody else for that. It was just my own expertise, which I could hold on to. And reading of the data, I could see, okay, no, I am looking at something strange here. I am looking at a kind of a a herd phenomenon, some kind of stampede following a panic. Um, And then the rest just, you know, it, it, it unfolds itself because you start to look at the media, you start to look at everything the government does then through totally different eyes. Because you ask yourself, do these people even know what damage they're doing? Are they interested in that? You start looking for newspaper stories about anxious kids or people whose IVF wasn't there. And oh, no, none of that's in the newspapers. They're not interested in it. Are they interested in other countries which are trying different methods? Are they, for instance, crawling over the Swedish data to see, ah, yeah, what have they done? What's the outcome been? No, all they're doing is they're spending all this time saying how bad Sweden is, as if they already know. So they're not... They're not looking at this in any scientific point of view at all it's it really is kind of the herd who doesn't want to know that what somebody else does might work better just wants to believe what it's doing is the right thing well that's not scientific that's not medical either this is sort of madness yeah no, it's and very so much- you start to look at the whole thing just it unravels very quickly but also it, it, what became clear to me very early on is that it, it was no, there was no point in trying to talk to authorities or trying to talk to most of my proposed fellow academics because they were sort of totally shielding themselves off reality, you know? I mean, they, they'd sort of gone off the planet when it came to data. So I very quickly resolved, okay, there's no point talking to those people. Um, let me just talk to others who know at least that this is madness and, and let me try and help them something else uh, I thought I had expertise in, which is knowledge of how whole systems work. So, you know, I've done a lot of work on corruption, but I've also done a lot of work on macroeconomics, a lot of work on culture, done a lot of work on institutions. I just did that for the British government. So, and I thought, okay, I, I, I will try and make a contribution towards a group of people who know this is madness by talking about okay, look, let me try and explain the herd phenomenon, but also what institutions we might need in 20 years' time to prevent this from occurring again. So I've seen that as my mission. I've sort of, I very quickly stopped talking to the mainstream. I sort of thought, no, there's no point in that. They're they're sort of totally off of the fairies.
0: And then plus there's a certain vilification aspect. Uh, And if you ever saw the invasion of the body snatchers, I think there are two versions, (laughs) but you know it's the the uh they look exactly like us as they t- you know they're pod people and when they find an actual thinking non uh not a zombified human uh they they point and shriek and then everyone else gloms around and and absorbs that person i mean there's been a, so much of that it's like people you know the i in the 80s uh, before we, we didn't know it was before the wall would fall down um my wife and i took a perhaps ill-advised, a bicycle uh, trip through Europe, and then we wound up going behind the Iron Curtain. So we were in we biked through Hungary, uh, Czechoslovakia, which was a thing, and uh, bits of East uh, Germany and Yugoslavia, anyway. Um, but th- this whole kind of being looked at uh, was so evident when we were there. Uh, it, we, uh, on the streets, people looked down, they wouldn't look at you. And the subway uh, in Berlin, East Berlin, people only looked at, at the floor and it was none of this social interaction. There were no jokes. There's no levity. Uh, there were, none of the advertisements had, you know, funny pictures. I mean, it was just like, uh, you know, like we see you know, kind of these sci-fi uh, films and so forth as if everything had blanched out. And, um, it, we, you know, it was, we, we had each other and we had fun and whatnot. And it was interesting. We went, got, you know, the day we got landed in West Germany, it was, um, you know, that movie Smallville, everything turns into color from black and white. It was like that. Um, but what we've seen here is that, you know, having an idea that's different is, um, you know, I, I'm sure you know, the Greek Cassandra, you know, she knew the truth. She would say it and, and everyone scorned her. They wouldn't listen. And I've had that in, in various of my civic groups. I'm in um, kind of a, an investing group. I uh, belong to a uh, squash and tennis club and a few other institutions and uh, religious um uh organization whatnot and and everyone kind of like goes after you as if you are the virus if you you know say that maybe you're kind of overdoing this and there are going to be other ramifications my i'll just close with this before i get back to you but you know one of my um medical interests um i had i ran kind of a a, a uh an outpatient narcotic detoxification uh, program for uh, a decade and uh um you know it's a population that's vulnerable all the time um, if you add your QALY, the quality adjusted life years, if I, I had a show on this topic about a year ago, uh, the increase in, in heroin, um, and opiate, uh, overdoses, um, the, just the excess in this uh, kind of COVID, uh, era, um, is enormous and totally outweighs, uh, the, 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 fatalities from the illness itself. And that was just, you know, opiate, uh, stuff. And it was just not even opiate illnesses, the margin. You know that the average median age i think is like 35 for opiate deaths and there's certain you know extra number of them I just to the u.s um but you know th- th- this you know huge kind of punishment there's a french word anomie which is namelessness and you know the worst punishment you can have in prison is not necessarily being beaten but being put in isolation the, the, the soul mm-hmm. you know is is a, a needy you know we're not needy but it it, it it requires interaction, and that your brain, you know, does hallucinatory things in isolation. And people, you know, this is this was the the answer. I just I, I find this still unfathomable, um, and 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 kind of sad. And and I don't know. I've, anyway, that that's not really a question. But you know, I appreciate your your efforts and and. Um, and, and your book and whatnot, have you had um, good feedback from that? And what what you know? What, what are the recommendations? I guess the forward-looking question would be, you, you've you analyzed this, and you can maybe state some of your other analysis, but what, what are your recommendations going forward? And are there any possibilities of it
1: being enacted? Mm. I mean, those are, I share your thoughts very much, Randall. I, I think I've personally been lucky in that, uh, my wife who actually works for a pharmaceutical but also my brother and his wife who works for a pharmaceutical and my children and my closest academic friends we we were all like-minded from day one right so i i find myself very lucky to to sort of be in an intellectual community whereby we were all sort of wondering what the heck is going on right and so we we did not really have the experience of being ostracized by you know those closest to us but i know people who've lost Husbands, wives who can't speak to their children, or who've been who've lost their uh, their close colleagues and at work, uh, and that's horrific. Right? In that sense, I have been lucky. I've also been lucky academically speaking in that the well-being economists of the UK, to which I belonged when when this broke, they were sort of like-minded. There was a certain madness going on, so. Something like 13 of the top well being economists in the UK, in their own way, wrote very negative pieces on this lockdown. So, you know, Lord Layard, John Deneva, Gus O'Donnell, Andrew Oswald, Nick Poverty, Fujiwara, Dolan, basically all of us. Um, and we weren't coordinating. We, we just all realized the damage that what's now being done to well being is going to vastly outweigh any. You know, very dubious supposed benefits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was all heartwarming. We, we didn't have this alienation, but we did see the alienation of lots of other people who were, who were sort of almost traumatized by how much they felt left behind and left alone uh, because of just noting what, what for them was as clear as daylight, which was that this was madness, what was happening. Um, and and that was me as a social scientist. I, I I tried to make my piece of that. So at the end of March 2020, I wrote a piece called "The Corona Lament," which mm. I tried to basically say, right, Paul, you you you, you got to from now on, you got to analyze this as best as you can, but get the grieving over. So you know, and you know what's going to come. You you know how much this is going to cost the kids and people in nursing homes, but also the the fading of the light, the the fading of the light of reason and of. Compassion, right? So I I tried to get that over with and sort of, okay, that is just going to happen, you know, and and there's nothing I can do about it. That's just going to happen, right? So so try and stay in analytical mode, get the grieving over uh, at the outset. Um, But it has been fascinating from a social science perspective to think about, yeah, what kind of group phenomenon are we looking at? Mm -hmm. And it took me a a few months to recognize that we're we're looking at a crowd behavior. Mm -hmm. It's also been called mass. Um, formation psychosis, but I think crowd is better in a sense because we have lots of historical writings on crowds and almost we've forgotten what crowds are like and now we're seeing one again, you know, after maybe 90 years of the most famous crowds that we have, the socialists and the Nazis, but also the ultra-nationalists of the 1930s. And we're now looking around and, and we sort of hardly recognize it and sort of, oh, this is what they were on about, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I saw a beautiful placard at, uh, at a demonstration by a woman holding up. Uh, have you ever wondered whether, you know, in the 1930s in, uh, in Germany, uh, whether, what side you would have been on? Now you know. Now you
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, my wife and I were talking about this very same thing uh, this morning uh, because uh, she's had, I'll leave her out, but, you know, there have been certain factions say formed amongst friends and and i think guys you know we tend to be more uh, say molecular or particle physics we tend to be projectiles we go our way and we if we bounce off and and we combine with something that's fine but the women are more um they're more say nucleated and they have various attractions whatever and they try to stay together but this was uh can't, you, know, I, we, you, you didn't know we were going to have atomic physics here um but That's you know okay. the, 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 nu- the the nucleus nucleus. St- nucleus stays together but it's also an incredible source of of, of potential explosive power because you have a, b- a bunch of positive charges which innately shouldn't be together and mm-hmm. so you know there were aspects of that and, and it all went around i mean it, went, it was other things that wound up being other things but but the factions such as I see and I'm not a social scientist but i i like of like science and i I think i'm fairly social um but you know what i see is that it 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 split along these kind of um how frightened are you of covet and and there were people who um you know weren't and there are people who still are some of them and you know going out outside with masks and you know kind of very radical uh changes in their lives and um and and the, the two factions tend to go either happy and unhappy you know if you um have some I, what I call agency, you know, control over the way things are going in your life, then um, and also in order to do so, you have to have a reasonable basis. You know, there, there's this thing called the internet, which I mean, I think most people can access. And yet, you know, something as, as obvious as the diamond princess, which is out there all along, you know, almost nobody knows about. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so it just made these huge fissures and fractures. Um, in, in kind of like our own lives society. Um and you know, we haven't had any, you know, fatalities or drug overdose or anything like that. But um but there are places and people, you know, who do. And it's a huge sadness. Uh, you know, I, I just you know we we um take care of a young girl. Uh she's like our goddaughter. And um you know so I've been around the, the schools and and seen you know what goes on there. The kids are still masked oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Uh in New York City they're still masked. And here uh, they do kind of uh, a system, you know. They're testing all the time. I mean, just they're sticking, you know, swabs up kids' noses on a regular basis. It's just really weird, and and there's nothing here in terms of illness. It's a, it's just it's a cold. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so you know, I I,
1: I, well, I I agree, Randall. I mean, that really is it. I mean, there's so many bad things, but what we've done to the next generation, deprives them of normal play, of sort of also a relaxed attitude to other people and the humanism, you know, but we, we've taken that away from them in many ways. Right? Um, you know, many have not seen their own family for two years because they're all too afraid to sort of congregate, whereas, you know, they're, they're all going to get this virus anyway. Why deprive them of two years of life? No, and They've been given this attitude towards others. You know, everybody else is now a potential enemy, a potential oh. virus vector. Whereas that's a horrible thing to load onto people's whole life, you know, making them afraid of everybody. Whereas life's joy is social. Life's joy is, you know, hugging, spending time together, uh, fighting, fraternizing. It, it all happens in our peer groups and close by. And we yeah. need that. We're, we're a social species. We're, we're not meant to be, you know, six <laughs> feet away from each other and sort of very afraid. That That's not... That's not our evolution that's not who we are it's not nothing in us is set up for that that's just loneliness yeah, no, it's amazing
0: and 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 you know the the, the I, t- I try to look at the silver linings of clouds and clearly one of them is uh zoom and and mm-hmm. so i have to say that i i i get a lot of your warmth uh from that lecture uh you know q a time and, and here today uh, even though we are <laughs> almost literally on opposite sides of the globe uh, so that's that's an incredible thing um, did you and your family or or professionally did you get to avail yourself of any of these kind of like um secondary aspects of socialization
1: um, yes we 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 sort of we we did miss socializing we missed travel, but we are a fairly bullshi bunch when it comes to that, so we took every opportunity to travel so in the first year of lockdown, we still had four international travels, you know. If there was kind of like, look, Boris Johnson is going to announce a lockdown to start tomorrow evening. Right off to Heathrow now. We don't care where we're going. <laughs> we're that's <happy>. awesome. Yeah, <laughs> we found ourselves on a Greek island for a month because it's just Oh, that's really island. amazing.
0: A uh, good bravo. You know, we 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 were taking care of my my mother-in-law. May her, you know, God rest her soul. She died uh, about a week and a half ago. And she had been yeah. in our house, in our basement, literally for about a decade. And her health was, uh, you know, hugely marginal. But we, you know, we took care of her and we were careful around her. Although we did not mask ourselves um, because this is there's, there's duration of life and there's quality of life. Um, and, you know, she, she would have gotten 18 boosters if she, you know, if they were, she, she was all pro booster and she stuck around mm-hmm. watching MSNBC all day. Um, but as far as personal interaction, she wanted us to be able to chat with her and, and play like, you know, card games and so all that kind of stuff. And, and nobody was going to do it masked. And, and and so she survived all that. She died from other causes and so forth. And and uh, I think she had as full a life as possibly can be given um, because she died naturally and her, you know, all that kind of stuff. But
1: um, around loved ones. That's beautiful.
0: Yeah. It's like but but I feel, you know, so we didn't. My point is we didn't get to travel. Um, the same way you did, but, you know, there's a lot of internal travel and, you know, so we we found other things, you know, we found the places that would allow the, the, you know, the, the, um, uh, pre pod people such as we were, um, to go out, you know, so we, we changed, like we, basically did i used to play squash in the winter and and um i gave that up for for indoor tennis which is okay um but there's certain places and rituals and then you have to kind of feel it out so there's a very much getting back to my you know kind of soviet era uh iron curtain experiences a lot of that you just people had lives there we talked with people and we yeah. had some interesting interactions but it's all hush hush you kind of had to get through a few layers before people would share mm-hmm. it with you and um you know that's a, it's a sadness uh you know I, that nobody apologizes nobody retracts um and uh you know so getting to the next phase i i, I think i asked this a little earlier but just you know are there conduits or are uh, open you know avenues for somebody we're gonna like posit that you are sane and accurate and so forth to first for sanity to, to to rule or reign or, or how do we kind of short circuit the kind of um this kind of mass phenomenon which i think you know, some of the elite organizations uh have in mind for us. I think a lot of this blue you know, this blueprint uh was preordained how to react to a Virion and and they just had all this ready to go. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of like lockdown ish. They they locked um, down thought.
1: Um yeah, I I, I look I, I see a lot of the same reality that the uh The political, but also the economic elites very quickly found the situation to be in their benefit and to instigate something that they clearly wanted already, right, which is sort of a propaganda world in which the masses have very little freedoms and it is at their behest. So it's been an enormous power grab. And what we know from history, power is not given back easily. Uh, And I'm afraid that there's no, no easy way to get the power going back to people. Um, but I am very hopeful in the long run. And, and, and I'm hopeful both in terms of what people can do immediately uh, and what will happen in the long run. So in terms of what people can do immediately, I think that the the example of what happened in Eastern Europe is actually a very good one, which is that in Eastern Europe, the state basically didn't do a lot of stuff and was stupid in many ways. And so these secret communities had something to do. They They, they you know cared for each other. They looked after each other's education, each other's arts, they read to each other, but they also had small schools, they had small clinics, they they were engaged in, in sort of, you know, helping each other with building houses and, and sort of small religious communities. So they really looked after each other and had something to do. And I think that we're seeing an outpouring of exactly that around the western world you you yourself are a good example of it you've ever dreamt doing all this facebook stuff many years ago
0: i I never did any i'm not i'm not shy but i have a kind of recalcitrance because i'm i'm a general practitioner physician i'm not you know i'm not a professor of this or that i'm not the head of this you know i had my own office uh for about 30 years and i know how to run me i know how to do me pretty well and i know how to interact with people on a one-to-one basis you know you have a sore throat, and you also have a, I don't know, clotting disorder. I'm, I'm okay in figuring stuff out and kind of tailoring uh, my message for individuals. But I hadn't really thought about uh, kind of, you know, you know, taking that and putting that on the road in some way or putting it out there. And um, you know, I get. I mean it's hard it's hard to know what criticisms are, are real because a lot of it just becomes political if they see that you're, you know, red pill, blue pill, you know, you're you're the wrong team. Um it's like uh, you know, Red Sox fans, you know, going to Yankee Stadium or vice versa. You know, there's just a lot of kind of tribal um you know, reaction formation. So it's hard to, you know, you have to sift through all that. But yes, it's been an interesting um uh trip for me and I don't want to Spend my time talking with you when I have you here, but um, I, I wound up using uh, this kind of Zoom and Facebook Live stuff to um, help formulate and 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 process the books that I had in my head. And I've actually got four books ready from the COVID years. And um, the first one is out. at, not you know shameless self promotion, but it's called Overturning Zika. So it's about the last pandemic that disappeared, and what was that about? So that's a teaser for anybody interested. Um, It's on Amazon. You can find it. Um, But, you know, the Zoom part, you know, I I always had trouble with the blank page. But the Zoom part, when I had questions and I had topics, I I hired somebody to interview me to kind of develop this book. And uh, he's a law student in Brazil, so he didn't have a medical interest, per se. Those questions were general, but it helped me research and and provide answers. And then I kind of back. I backfilled a lot of the book from the conversation. So it was an interesting process. So yes, I, you know, I personally benefited intellectually. I mean, I, I don't think my tiny little brain, you know, it was, I think there's like maybe five hamsters up there on tiny little wheels and they're running around and they get tired, but, but I, they, they had kind of a good workout and that, that, that was, I, I had not really put as much devoted thought to, you know, concepts and and getting you know explanations since since easily college i don't think medical school provided that at all um so it was it was you know a a fun experience insofar as i could make it that way um but overall i'd rather have you know two years of just you know regular uh less um you know kind of like draconian hysteria
1: look i i totally agree randall and and there's a deep point in in what you say as well right i mean the the point i was making which you exemplify is that this has been a rebirth of civil society. America has a, a long tradition of civil society and it's sort of been quite robust before even. Right, uh, Lots of people were quite passionate about their politics or their beliefs uh, and sort of making communities. But in much of Europe, that was gone, right? Because the state worked so well. You know, we, we prided ourselves, particularly in Northern Europe, on having a state which was so much better than the American ones, because we didn't need to worry about education or local communities. There's sort of good job was being done and now suddenly it's oh my god they're hopeless they're they're letting pull the ball left right and center and so now you know lots of villages and communities and and, and belief communities are sprouting up again right And, and it's like a renaissance in that sense of sort of own thinking um, and so the, 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 that is a silver lining, you know, the rediscovery of civil society, basically, because the state has dropped the ball so much. And also because it's become so visible, this sort of growing together of the top of the corporate world with the political world and the media world into sort of one group in the sense. It doesn't mean that they coordinate, but it does mean that they're in the same world and sort of have roughly the same interests. Uh, and one of those interests does not care about the 99%. Um, for you know who they sort of see as as worth less now, um, but I, I wanted to get back to this point of of sort of you know what what the deep point is and what you said was that you see a lot of dumbing down of the mainstream. Right? If I if I speak to people whom I haven't spoken to for two years who sort of gone along with the herd, it, it is amazing how deteriorated they are. It really is. I mean, you you sort of want to put a test underneath them and. If you do this to school children they have deteriorated relative to their peers and age tremendously from before right because of this lack of stimulation but also because of the lack of critical thinking because of the lack of being challenged you know the cancel culture has become so normal it's become so normal for everybody in that herd to agree with each other that there's a kind of a mental laziness which has gone in uh, and as a result um There's just a general dumbing down of the political debate, of how the bureaucracy does things, uh, of, of, you know, uh, people in their daily lives have not traveled much, have not experienced much diversity. And so in that sense, you see that civil society racing ahead because it's being challenged. I mean, I, I am like yourself, you know, surrounding myself with lots of people who are critical of the mainstream narrative. And there are people in the mainstream narrative also still in my circles. But Jesus, there are a lot of diversity within the people who are outside the mainstream narrative. You know, I, I find myself disagreeing with people on all sorts of things. You know, we might agree with our skeptical stance on all the COVID stuff, but it doesn't mean that we agree about 9-11 uh, or, you know, the, the importance of, uh, of what it was in the Q5 masks or God knows what else, right? Uh, and so you know there's sort of you know, robust debate and and we keep each other sharp and I think that that's gone out of mainstream culture largely right. and so there's a silver lining for you right <laughs> your brain is free, whereas that that of the rest is not being kept in line same yeah. for your system of course
0: no i i've never i i kind of came from a debate y kind of family um that was just i i don't know i, I mean we had i think a good family um uh, and but it was, you know, there was all argumentation. You know, people. One person said something. You know, we were three brothers, and we all had our own kind of mental territorial aspects, and and our parents put up with that. And, and you know, I just kind of always thought that's how you do things. You know, and <laughs> it's mm-hmm. only like later life that people are like, wow, you're very this, that. You know, and uh, stubborn, mm-hmm. aggressive. Um, you know, whatever. You know, kind of sure of yourself. So anyway you know, most, most good qualities can be given a bad term one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I've never really been passive about things. And if I have an idea, you know, I follow it along and I try to come up, you know, I, I, I kind of toss it up in the air a few times and see which way it looks and lands and, and this and that. And it's not a perfect, you know, Newtonian experiment for everything, but, you know, a lot of this stuff just didn't ring true. I mean, when, when people were literally ignoring the diamond princess, when, when you could and again, I, I repeat this because again, there's only three hamsters in there, but you know, you could not have designed a, a more nearly perfect experiment for coronavirus mm. than that. Mm. Maybe you could have distributed the ages or ethnicities, or whatever I think it was mostly Japanese um mm-hmm. and you know they skewed a little bit older but that's kind of good for covid you know because you want to test they didn't have really a lot of kids but all the data i mean you know most all the kids there were i think uh, three to six hundred kids on the boat or something yeah. like that and entirely asymptomatic like mm-hmm. and and some of them push in, out, you know certain numbers sort of positive but but there was really nothing going on with them you know all the deaths were in like the 80 80 year old range and only think 10 or 11 deaths out of 33,711 people on the boat. Uh, the staff, you know, skewed young. They they were the ones to get ill because they go from person to person to person. Really, amongst the staff, there was nothing. The, the, the whole FedEx model or whatever, you know, having certain people be the conduits, you know, between others was there as long as your people are healthy. And I mean, it, 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 anybody sane and benevolent would have like easily like said, oh, we're kind of done here. We know mm-hmm. what this is, and and you know it, it took Jay Bhattacharya, Martin Koldof and Sudipta Gupta to come up with focus protection as a as a term of art. Um, but that there you have it. You know, mm-hmm. you know cover. I mean, protect the stuff you need to protect. That's that's kind mm-hmm. of obvious. And um, you know, huge sadness. And you know, this is again I'm veering off into a diatribe instead of a question. But you know, the one thing I noticed along the way, and it's not quite a silver lining, maybe it's the opposite, maybe it's kind of tawdry um, um, uh, lining, um, is that the parliamentary system seems to have a flaw in it. Um, You know, the United States of America, we have different states, we have kind of more, uh, we have our own little Sweden here and there amongst our states. And and a lot of the parliamentary places, they either went up or down, they're kind of flip cards. And if you're in one of these parliamentary countries, like Australia, uh, New Zealand, and so forth. You're just SOL. You're out of luck um, mm-hmm. about how well you're going to be able to, you know, to move around and so forth. And you know, it seems like a weird kind of. We saw. always saw these places benign democracies, whatever that means per se. But if you don't have kind of the Republican bulwark against uh, major, you know tyranny of the majority, then you're mm-hmm. going to have a, a separate virus, which is you know absurdism. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I, 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 you know, you have probably more uh, countries on your passport uh, uh, stickers than I do. Uh, <laughs> ha, ha, how have you approached this? And what are your thoughts about um, kind of, I guess, the bigger political sphere? I know it might be outside your ken your a little bit. No, no not, not
1: at all. I, I very much think about those things. Well, there's so many things in that sense we can talk about around. But I think one of the things is important to note is that when this panic swept the world in January, February, and March, it swept all before it, of all kinds of difficult, different persuasions. So, you know, the autocratic collectivist regimes in the East, uh, sort of, you know, the best and most ancient democracies that we had in Europe, including the UK, including the Netherlands, Denmark, you know, the happiest country in the world, one of the best organized, the richest, very quick on the or although also quick out of it. Um, And as you say, basically only Sweden and a little bit the rest of Scandinavia resisted, but that was essentially because of the way that they had organized their health system uh, as far more independent, but run by well-meaning people. So they were effectively happy enough not to have their health system politicized as much as what was already normal in the rest of Europe, Uh, because if it's politicized, then once it Once it makes a bad decision, it it sort of never does want to admit that. And so it just keeps going. Um, And they were not like that. So in Norway, for instance, the health authorities took the wrong first decision, but then apologized for it. Hmm. Well, there's a turn up for the book. (laughs) Um, but (laughs) But I want to say something which your American viewers should like, which is that one of the long run reasons why I think that we will get out of this whether there's justice is a totally different thing, but we will get out of this. We will get out of this new dark age is is because diversity and sort of, you know, uh, a relaxed attitude towards the truth and, and, and a commitment to science uh, and efficiency, um, it makes you stronger in the long run. So the countries and regions which are sort of are, are now still stuck in stupidity land They are deteriorating in almost any indicator you want to look at. You know, their government debt is going up, their IQs will be going down, the education is going down, um, they're they're having difficulty collecting the taxes, uh, trade is going down, they're spending a lot of their production stuff on on things that don't benefit anybody, anxiety is up, happiness is down, Uh, almost anywhere you want to look. And, and the places which have either by luck or just by copying the good examples. So, and I think for me, for instance, Florida isn't that. It didn't start being the good example, it very really quickly followed the good example. Uh, they're seeing an influx of people. You know, we, we did not get freedom from history because people liked freedom. No, we got freedom out of history because it works better. Right?
0: And, and well, so people we, sacrificed we, for it, yeah. people well, had they, to sacrifice.
1: They, yeah, it, it was fought for, but it wouldn't have stuck around, it wouldn't have won against the kings and emperors of Europe if it wasn't, as it were, evolutionary fit, and it's evolutionary fit because regions that incorporate that and incorporate in its institutions, particularly the separation of power, particularly some notion of a media that are separate from the political establishment, um, those kind of aspects uh, basically make you stronger as a country, and People initially didn't believe that in Europe, you know, in the 16th, 17th century. If our oh, separation of power, that's like cutting off your limbs, how's that going to make you stronger, right? And, and you see that logic returning now. Oh no, it's better if we all think the same way. Surely we're stronger then. No, we're not. We are actually stronger when we don't agree on everything. When we have robust debate, we are a stronger unit for having diversity within it. And so no truth should win. We should always have differences of opinion. We don't ever want to get into the situation where we all agree on exactly everything. That is the most dangerous situation you want to be in. You don't want that, even if it's my truth, even if it's your truth. We want that diversity. And here's a compliment for the U.S., right? Within the U.S., which were the states which didn't lock down at all? They, They were what you might describe as the hillbilly places, you know, full of guns, Right? probably people where it was a pl- place where the average IQ on the usual test would have been the lowest, right? It's sort of the most disorganized, you know, South Dakota, that kind of place. Um, but yeah, whether by accident or not, they hit upon the right thing, uh, and that was then copied by others. Uh, and there was a huge distrust of Washington there. There was a, you know, a kind of a bolshe independence of spirit. But whatever it was, this is part of the beauty of the U.S. The beauty of the U.S. is this enormous tribalism and polarization, because that means the U.S. will try different things in this different states because they don't want to be like the other ones. And they're sort of the headstrong, but they will learn from each other. They will. Right. Peak
0: I, I agree with you there. I, 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 you know, it's te- the technical uh, the term of art is, I think, federalism, which is yeah. almost seems like the opposite of what it should be. But in, insofar as the states were federated I mean, when, uh, you know, small point, which I bring up now and then is, is originally this was the United States of America. insofar so far as other states were their own um, uh, kind of incorporated uh, national beings. Um, so th- these were amalgamated to have a common border, but for the sense of, of keeping away foreign invaders and the federal government per se was it was a federation was a bringing together of these states but it didn't really have many powers in and of itself and the states you know a lot of this was reserved to the states and so we have you know kind of the the uh, kind of multi you know test tube experimental aspect and we've seen it in, in other places on earth and and i bring this up in so far as you know bringing up these it's hard to do experimentation on people aside from the diamond princess um, and and so the, the way we've been able to do experiments are, are by observation and by seeing how things play out differently uh, in different, uh, you know, fauna and flora uh, zones, uh, you know, Sweden versus, you know, so I've, you know, month, week by week and so forth throughout the pandemic, you know, look at how, you know, South Africa is doing very low, you know, vaccination rate in India had the the you know the India version we can't call the Delta version later on you know they did it with with a 10 percent uh, vaccination rate in the population and it's not like there's nobody there it's like one point I don't know two or three billion people in India or something like that and you know if things would have fallen you know people were like willful about avoiding this the Omicron was out in in, in South Africa for a full month before we've had it here in the US. And I actually interviewed um, Dr. Nati Miladla, uh from Johannesburg and he's a anesthesiologist physician. And you know, I, my, we got, I don't know, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 views and so forth, but it should have been dogma. It should have been like everybody who was like wanting to close that, lock everybody down over Omicron. They should have watched this, like we, you just did this. Like, look what it was, nobody was getting ill. It was equivalent of the cold and all the other Omicrons are that, and yet my, you know, very accredited friends, uh, you know, MD, PhDs and whatnot on my tennis group and of other groups and so forth. You know, I hang out with like credentialed people <laughs> uh, and maybe they may, may be their error to hang out with me, but, you know, I hang out with, you know, very influential people and and they're very lockstep about it. They don't want to hear anything. It's just, I, I, you know, my jaw can't drop enough at some of the disappointments I've had and these weird, uh, silly debates over things they should, really should know better. So. You know, I, I think that I think you're. But, absolutely- I
1: think, I, but I but I, think that should be a point in terms of looking for the future. I mean, this this kind of autocratic, as you say, lockstep. One can think of it the closed mind, the cancel culture. That's not going to go away in a hurry. Even if governments, after trying everything that's wrong, are sort of you know forced to sort of be a, a more sensible line on COVID, they'll take a nonsensical line on other things. You know, they'll take a nonsensical line on climate change or whatever the next emergency is because power corrupts and they've had a taste of absolute power and they're going to want that. So new emergencies are also going to be abused, maybe less so in the States than in the EU and Europe, but in the Europe, it's really looking dire. But the reason I'm bringing that up is saying that this is now a long run game. We are, as it were right now in, in a situation in Europe, which sort of resembles the Middle Ages with superstitions ruling the roost and highly autocratic regimes which are also made up of sort of the top corporations and they they dominate the airwaves and there's basically ministries of propaganda now all over the place and a, a new kind of religion, you know, a safetyism health religion which actually is making people less safe and less healthy. But this is the reality now. It's not going to go away next year, Randall. So yeah. there is also uh, this what I term a sort of a, a new enlightenment movement. You know, based on on sort of local civil groups, much like in Eastern Europe, there was sort of like a slow resistance against the Soviet regime. I think that's what it's going to look like, right? Sort of sensible local yep. uh, communities, some countries which have seen the lights, some provinces, some states which have seen the lights. But it's a it's a slow move back to the light. It's a slow move back to the light, and and in that sense, it's about much more than health, right? I, I think. One of the mistakes I've seen what I call the coevsins make is is to sort of go along with this mainstream obsession about cases and Omicron and Delta and and already in April 2020 I sort of was uninterested in that I didn't want to know about the ICU occupation and many of my friends were sucked into that because that was the news they dealt with that is what they felt they had to fight and I said like, look this is a done thing they're mad they're going to stay mad they're not going to listen to you however much Effort you put in, and so then you know who are you broadcasting for, right? I, I sort of wanted us to move on to the next step, which is, well, what are we going to do? And if one keeps on, as it were, as we we're commenting on the mainstream narrative in a way, one is then still on on one's mind, sort of spinning off mainstream, and it should be different. It should be, it, it, we should now think much wider. We should think well what kind of society will we become what are the deeper problems how would we want to solve this what has gone out of our culture that we'd like to resurrect what are the new challenges with you know modern technology that we've got to adapt for you know it, we can't just dream of oh resurrect what there was there's the reality of the internet of social media they bring up their challenges ai and and we've got to be part of that and we've got to think within that okay within that how do we prevent this kind of crowd madness? Um, how do you run a modern society which is more robust? So, you know, the, the scare stories towards the, the stampeding that happens on these social networks. That is how we should think now. We, we should sort of stop gazing blindly at the same thing that the rest of the, of the world gazes at, which is, you know, fairly irrelevant numbers, uh, and, and start to look at the relevant numbers and, and the much bigger picture of, the future the society we want um and i feel that that still that conversation is is only to start for the majority of the world
0: mm. well we're going to be closing up in just a couple minutes uh, we're at the fifty more four minute mark and i'd like to make this under an hour um but uh you know i i have high admiration for you and and frankly uh if anything it it's new because i've only heard about you since for a week um a little more perhaps um but you know i i i want everybody to go look your name up and find your articles because they're fascinating and they're excellent and they're clear and they're excellently written so that's a plus i have not seen your book i mean i've seen i have not read your book yet so i'm going to download that or or get a copy um but you know i i just want to point out that oh there it is there we go
1: Right that's right yeah,
0: that works that works for me um so i i only came upon this today earlier and as i mentioned when i was looking up your name uh, for some questions and so forth um and maybe we just take a couple minutes on this um you stood your ground um and you have a, a kind of a social study interesting Uh, report um i think about buses you know checking people's cards and so forth letting them up on without a fare and it's you know interesting topic but more uh you know it was uh you were i guess ostracized in some way for having something come out that was against what certain groups wanted to hear and so maybe just uh two minutes if if you will on on how what what that meant to you. First of all, I, I appreciate your strength in not backing down and sticking to your, your truth. And so we're letting the debate fall where it may But What, what, what were the ramifications and, and how did that change you?
1: Um, yeah, so a, a brief intro. So this is known as the racism on the bus study, whereby a, a PhD-initiated study on which I was a co-author found that uh, people who were white, but also uh, Asian, by the way, so also Japanese and Chinese, were more likely to get a free ride on a bus if they entered the bus without money and asked whether they could stay on, than somebody who looked Aboriginal or somebody who looked Pacific Islander, you know, uh, black or Indian. Right? Uh, it was almost a 40% difference. So there was a the, there was a huge degree to which the more white-looking ones, which at that time still included the Chinese, were sort of seen as the in-group, uh, and the darker they were, the more the out-group. Um, and and this led to a huge Sort of interest in the media, but also an enormous backlash from the city authorities, who clearly did not want their city associated with anything like this. They did not want that to be the story of Brisbane. And so they pressurized the university hierarchy to go after me. Uh, and uh, and they did. And so that, you know, took two years before finally, in court, uh, I could sort of waylay their of nonsense accusations, because you know that they they then go after you by basically accusing you of you know unethical research practices and whatnot. Uh, but they basically just drag up anything that they can find, because this this has to be seen to be punished, right? Less somebody else gets it in their head that they can actually do this kind of interesting research. um And this research did eventually get published in a good journal, the EJ, uh, last year, the Economic Journal. So. Very proud, the LSE stood behind me 100% of the way when uh, when they attracted me after this. Um, but, you know, that situation was that, that there was an element of traumatization in it, in the, in the sense that I was sort of forced to fight my way through a court case. Mm. Uh, and and sort of, you know, you, you have to strategize. There were lots of friends who helped me. There was a New York Times article which was glowing about me at that time, saying, you know, fighting for truth and all that. Um, but it is still difficult, you know. You're up against a huge bureaucracy, and, yep. uh, and it's expensive authority. too.
0: It's you, expensive. you must have spent fifty thousand uh, uh, dollars.
1: Uh, that's twenty five percent of what I spent, Randall.
0: Right? I can't uh, really do math. I'm that's just, I'm just
1: kidding. Two hundred thousand. Yeah. So, um, so, but, but, it's more the time, right? It just cost you a year of your life. But I, I, I. I, I I got some hopefully a bit more humility and some appreciation of how difficult this is to fight for other people because i mean i was in a very privileged position you know i had lots of academic friends lots of support from academia people wrote letters and petition and had all the sympathy from the media and and i had a supportive family and you know my background helped me and and i could go elsewhere and, and that sort of thing but lots of people have to deal with these bureaucracies who treat them like shit. And, and they, they've got no defense. They've just got to suck it up and they're, they're driven to suicide and all kinds of things. So lots of people wrote to me in that period, telling me of their stories of how no, they, I,
0: I hear this a lot and I'm, I'm going to have to close. Yeah. But first of all, you have my heartfelt sympathy over that episode and I'm glad you came out on your feet and all that kind of stuff. I think this is a good message for our listeners and I'm going to uh, maybe, uh, you know, invite you, invite them to, to follow up with you and and look at your story and stick to your guns. You know, at the end of the day, um, you know, I've had a lot of people come up to me, all kinds of parties and whatnot. And they're like, oh my God, you say what I think, but I'm just so afraid. I go to your site all the time, but I don't want to tell anybody. <laughs> it's like, you know, dude, you, you have these liberties, you know, use them or they're going to be vestigial. You know, you have to make the me- most of your situation and, and use the opportunities and freedoms you have. Anyway, I, I'm in your debt. Uh, if there's anything ever I can do for you, please let me know. I, I think uh, this uh, was certainly educational edifying for me, and I hope it is for our listeners. Um, so why don't you hang on for a minute and we'll chat, but I'm going to say goodbye to everybody else. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, please follow up with uh, Paul Fritters um, as, uh, as you can and buy his book. All right. So thanks so much. Uh, last word from you.
1: It's great to be on the show, Randolph. Great work. Right. Keep it going.
0: All right. Thanks so much. Have a good day.